everybody. My name is Joel, and this is episode 56 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. A very cool Q&A episode today, talking about stances and parenting, same numbers together in relationships, uh, talked about twos and giving and their feelings, fives, sixes, and so much more. Uh, Suzanne talks for a minute about grieving in the Enneagram, and people tend to have more questions about grieving after it's mentioned. So, today's plug is to visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com, go to the store, and you can get the Anagram and Grieving MP3 or CD set for 40% off uh, between now and the end of May. Thanks again for listening and for continuing to send in questions, and we really hope that you enjoy today's episode. I'm excited because it is another questions and answer podcast. I love these days. I love when we get to do this. I'm also really excited, too, because we have several that people send in through the voicemail. Oh, cool. And I think that's a cool piece of technology. Yeah, me too. I like that. We are actually going to open with that. In fact, a question from Chrissy. Hi, I'm Chrissy. I'm a five, and I'm a mom to a three-year-old and an almost one-year-old. Um, I'm pretty new to the Enneagram. I've spent the last month or so really digging in and learning as much as I can about it, which I guess is very five of me. Um, But one thing that I haven't been able to find too much about is how fives can be better parents. Um, As mom to two toddlers, I just feel drained from the moment I wake up. Um, I want to be super present for them, but I just can't. I just want to curl up in a ball on the couch all day long, basically. My three-year-old in particular is incredibly draining. Between arguing with him over every single thing and dealing with his typical three-nager tantrums when he doesn't get his way and answering 40,000 questions about every aspect of life and his need for me to just be really hands-on and playing with him all day long, I'm just, I'm spent by the time I even get breakfast on his plate in the morning. Um, I try to keep us busy with out-of-the-house activities most days so that I don't have to be solely responsible for entertaining them. Um, But obviously that just drains me even more as a five. Um, So do you have any tips for fives that can help overcome this and allow me to give more to my kids, especially while they're so young and they need so much of me? Thanks so much. Hi, Chrissy. I hope I get to meet you someday. That's such a courageous question. I think you must be six feet tall. That's brave and honest and generous. I, I just think it's very, very honoring of your children for you to call in and ask that question. So let me see if I can help. First of all, parenting is so hard. And secondly, it seems to be so hard for people to do what you've just done and admit that it's really hard. So um, I want to talk to you about being a five for a minute. You are uh, the number on the Enneagram that has the least available energy. And the reason is because you just have the same amount every morning. So someday when the children are grown and gone, you're going to wake up with the same amount of energy that you have now while they're right there and 100% your responsibility during the day. Let me try to give you a few little clues about things that might help, but here's the most important piece. You're a really good mom, or you wouldn't have asked the question. They're really lucky to have you as their mom because you're trying to find a way 
at the beginning of their lives to figure out how to meet their needs and how to meet your own as well. And it's going to be tricky for you for the whole time. It's, it's not going to, you're not going to suddenly have more energy. So here are some tips. Getting out so that you don't have to be all of the energy for them is a really, really good thing. Be sure that you try to find a public place to take them so that they have plenty of stimulus around them, but you're not in a situation where you have to sit and talk to other moms because that, too, will drain you. You need to be doing something where nobody's going to want to engage with you in conversation. Secondly, you need to take a break as soon as your partner in life is home. You need to take a break for about an hour and just do time for yourself. And you need to ask for that up front, and you need to say that you're going to need it every day. And once a week, you need an evening or a morning where you get to go somewhere and just do whatever you want to do. You can go to a library and read. You can go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee and read. You can go anywhere where people aren't going to bother you and where you get to do something you love. And if you can set that up on a weekly basis and you can set up that hour on a daily basis, then that gives you breathing room that you can look forward to, that you know is going to give you the energy you need to do the next two or three or five things. As the children get older, multitask. So do other things that you have to do while you're playing with them so that you get a little breather when they're napping or you get uh, an opportunity when they're entertaining themselves or when they're okay to take care of yourself and not use that time to take care of cooking, cleaning, laundry, all of those kinds of things. So you need to start with a schedule for yourself because without it you'll get distracted and you'll get discouraged. And then y'all need to agree on what time during the week is your time. And I'd love for you to write on an index card and put it on your mirror. This quote, you are a great mom, Suzanne Stabile. I hope that helps, darling. Right, the next question uh, comes from Ann, but it's also, I'll add some questions after we hear from her. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you so much for this podcast. I'm so enjoying it. I've read The Road Back to You and The Path Between Us, and I've been working on the Enneagram for um, about a year through reading. I'm having real trouble discerning if I'm a two or a one. And I would say the most helpful information about that is that I think my greatest need is to be wanted, which sounds very two-ish to me. But I identify traits of ones like sounding critical when I mean to be helpful and like noticing something that's wrong before I notice something that's right. So I'm really interested at this time at nailing these down because, number one, I'm parenting two teenagers. And number two, I'm about to take on a leadership position in our church. And I just think this would be so helpful for me to know about myself as I go into that. If you have any insight or um, direction or recommendations for further study, I would really appreciate it. And thank you again for all the work you're doing here. So the question that I want to add to this or the piece that I want to add to this, uh, a crazy high percentage of the time that people send in questions about trying to differentiate their number, trying to figure out their number. 
one is always in the mix in some form or fashion. And so my question to add to hers is, do, do you know why that is? Why are people, why is one always a part of it? Especially when Enneagram One has the deal breaker. Okay, and thank you very much. And Joel, that's a really good point for us to speak to. So, Anne, let's start with whether or not you're a two or a one. There's a big difference in uh, a desire to be wanted and a desire to be correct or right. So let me address something Joel just said, and we'll work from there. Really, the biggest deal breaker in the Enneagram in terms of knowing your number comes with ones. And so it is a little bit disconcerting to me that the one is always included in the mix when people are trying to figure out what number they are. The deal breaker is that ones have a constant, merciless inner critic that tells them they're wrong or that they're bad or that they're inadequate all day, every day. And that's completely different than self-talk, which we all have, where we wish we had done things a little better or we feel bad about something that we did. So I would suggest um, that you really think about that and think about the difference in having an inner critic and in having self-talk. In terms of your uh, part of the question about being perceived by yourself or by others as critical when you're trying to be helpful, that's a real important thing for you to pay attention to in terms of where are you getting the information that you're critical from other people, or is it a response from other people that makes you think you were being critical instead of helpful? Because teenagers, by their nature, tell us as parents that we're too critical of them. And if that's where you're picking up that message, then you need to hold that pretty loosely. That just means you caught them doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing, and you're trying to be helpful. It's interesting that you used helpful because that's the talk style, you know, for twos, is help and advice. And so um, if you take into account that our thinking as twos is primarily about relationships, then my guess would be that you offer people help or advice. They don't take it. You keep thinking about that conversation, and you keep wondering if you were too critical and if you weren't helpful and if that was a bad thing and if it's going to hurt your relationship and all of that is two stuff, all, all of it. So uh, my guess is that you're a two. Joel, in terms of your question about why is one always in the mix, I think it's because we all want to do things well. I think we all want to be good at what we do. I think we all want to look back and feel like, what we did was effective. I think um, we're not so much striving for, for perfection, but we, gosh, I want to be a really good parent uh, at, to adult children, which is very tricky. I want to be really good at what I do, and I'm real hard on myself sometimes, but it's me being hard on myself. It's not some inner critic telling me that I'm not good, and I hope that helps. And there's a big difference between the need to be wanted and the need to be right or good. Or perfect. Yeah. Uh, the next question from Kyle. Dear Suzanne, 
I am in Enneagram 3 and my wife is in Enneagram 4. I struggle to switch from doing tasks in my life to processing through her feelings, much less my own feelings. Any thoughts on how to switch from doing mode to processing mode? That's a great question, and I have an answer. And my answer is that you need to schedule dealing with feelings. And I know that sounds really terrible. But you need to allow time in your day to stop and deal with feelings. And you are great at multitasking. So my guess would be that you don't stop doing to deal with other people's feelings, especially your wife's. You keep doing what you're doing, and you're kind of listening, and then you want to fix it for her so that y'all can move on and so that she'll be feeling something different. Fours don't want you to fix their feelings. They want you to hear them. And if you'll stop what you're doing and listen, you'll have much more time for the things that you want to do. It's that multitasking piece that gets you. And I would suggest that you take a little time every evening to just sit with your wife and say, how was your day? And tell her how yours was and entertain her feelings and do your very best to honestly share with her some feeling that you had during the day. That'll help you bring up your own. It's a very loving, tender question for you to ask. Make sure she knows that there was a lot of feeling behind you wanting to do it better. All right, so we got questions that came in that I had prepared, and then this morning I posted uh, on Instagram, if you have questions, you know, this is what we're doing. So one of the questions that has come up through the emails is uh, about couples who are the same number. How can we complement each other if we are the same number? And then a question that came in on Instagram today uh, from underscore salty man or Saltyman, I would love to hear some wisdom about holding firm and appropriate boundaries between two fours in an intimate relationship. Specifically, we struggle when we are both experiencing the low lows and don't really know the path to getting out of our tumultuous inner world to be present to one another. So that's specific to fours, but two of the same number. Okay. Well, let me start with two of the same number and then I'll be honed in on specific to fours. I think uh, every relationship has to be navigated. I think the way to navigate two people of the same number has to do with looking at what isn't the same between the two of you. So um, remember that you take in information with how you see But you need to also remember that the fact that you're the same number doesn't mean that you took in the same information during the day. So if you are uh, two eights, then you have a lot to do, and you took in a lot of information, most of which you've processed, but you might want to drop some bullet points about that. That would also be true of threes and sevens when they're with the same number in a couple. And so you need to look for nuance and difference in order to really know each other and to understand what happened during the day. Second, um, the fact that you're in different circumstances with different responses means that you 
make too many assumptions about sameness that don't apply to difference. So don't assume that you're going to think the same way about something. Don't assume that you're going to feel the same way about something. Now I'm going to run through the numbers without fours. I'm going to do that last. And I'm going to tell you a couple of things to watch for um, and something you might do. So ones with ones, you can be sure that you won't perfect the same things. Don't be dismissive of what the other person wants to have perfect. You each have your areas of life that are important to you that they be kept perfectly. And those two things are how you manage your anger. So accommodate one another by allowing for that. Secondly, when you get together, you can be very critical of other people and of other family members. So you need to be very mindful of that. Two twos, you're so other-referenced and you're so into helping other people, you don't have any practice at receiving. And if you can't learn to receive from each other, then it's going to be very costly in your relationship. So you need to work on that. Two threes, um, most people I find in recovery circles who are workaholics are threes on the Enneagram. So if you are uh, two threes in a couple, I'm sure that you're successful and that you're achieving a lot, but relationship work isn't on a checklist and it's not something to uh, accomplish and check off. It's something to work at and you're both feeling repressed. So you have a lot of work to do around that. I would encourage you to take some sit-down, stop time with one another every day. And I would encourage you to have separate volunteer opportunities during a two-week period or every month where you go do something that requires feelings and come back and share with one another about that. Two fives, you'll have to work at building a relationship because you will just uh, circle one another in your own orbit if you don't. And you're going to have to work because most things will be a head trip for you. You're going to have to work around the fact that you're more sarcastic, excuse me, that you're more sarcastic and more cynical than most numbers. So you're going to have to really, really watch for that. And you're going to have to individually do things that... Um, come with some amount of risk, things that you might not be good at, uh, things where you may not be competent and you may not have all the knowledge that you feel like you need. Two sixes, uh, depending on whether or not you're phobic or counterphobic, you will struggle with authority and spending too much of your life talking about authority figures if you're not careful. And you will both overcommit to things that are uh, mindful of what's best or for the greater good. And then you won't have enough left to really commit to one another. And you have to be very careful about both of you worrying about and worst case scenario planning for the same things. If you don't divide and conquer that, then anxiety will be at the heart of your relationship, and that won't serve you well. Two sevens, uh, you're going to have a really good time together, but you could also get yourselves in a lot of trouble in terms of not 
completing tasks, not focusing on things that need to be done, and not ever having any downtime. So I, I think you're going to have to be really mindful of the weak side of being a seven and not just focus on what you can reframe and on what you find to be light and entertaining. At the same time, you're really good at seeing where systems overlap and you'll easily identify where your sevenness overlaps in the other one and you can make some healthy choices based on that. Two eights is a fiery relationship. So what I would encourage you to do is divide responsibilities so that you each have your own half and you each take responsibility for that half and don't help the other one and don't get involved. And remember that the rest of us move at a slower pace than you do and the rest of us are very mindful of feelings. So you're going to have to slow down and not team up on other people in your family or on other people. And that will be your inclination, I suspect. And nines, you're going to have to be very intentional because you won't be able to make decisions together if you're not. So you're going to have to do your own work so you come to the table ready to share what you think and what you want and what your long-term plan for life is and things that you'd like to do with your life. Because if not, you'll merge with each other to the point that you, you don't have any goals anymore. So that's a, that's a tricky one. Two fours. Golly, that's complex. Joe and I have always taught that in terms of being invited in to help a couple, the place where we feel the least effective is in trying to help two fours who are a couple. So please, in advance, forgive my inadequacy, but embrace my honesty in that you're in a very complex relationship. And I think for all fours, your highs are too high and your lows are too low. And to find comfort in that is very problematic. So I think you have to be careful that you lead separate lives and that you come together to share life, but that you don't get too connected to the rhythm of the other one. Because when you can't connect, in the reality of what I call pushing and pulling, it can destroy a relationship. So let me explain that to you briefly. Fours tend to pull you in and then get afraid they're going to lose you and they push you away and they get afraid that you don't know how much they love you and they pull you back in. And it's very difficult for two fours to coordinate when one is pushing and when the other is pulling. So both of you are going to have to bring up thinking and you're going to have to bring up doing or you will not be able to manage the complexity of your feelings. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. As that, those are topic sentences for so much more, but it's what we have time for, and I think it'll be helpful. Right. You two sevens out there, you'll have some fun. You two sevens out there, listen to me and settle down. I, I do have a quick little follow-up question, maybe if we have time, and we might not. Two sevens in an intimate relationship. What happens when that last domino falls? 
Okay, that's a very good question. So uh, what Joel's referring to is that because sevens tend to live in a half range of feelings and it's the positive half, that means that they're not grieving. And life is going to present itself to you, sevens, in a way that at some point you will come upon the first thing that you can't reframe. And it'll be shocking to you in every way because reframing and defense mechanisms have worked for you your whole life. And when you can't reframe something, then it is the beginning of the domino effect of everything that required grieving that you skipped over in life since memory began for you. And that is a pit that you fall into that I actually don't think you can get out of without some professional help. It doesn't have to last forever, but you have to have some help to find your way out of that. So for two sevens in an intimate relationship, when one of them uh, has that experience of the first tragedy that they can't reframe and all of the dominoes fall, the other person is suddenly in a relationship with somebody they don't know, with somebody who's asking questions that have never been asked and who's saying things that have never been said, and they will not know how to help. So suddenly, what has been the connecting place for you is the great divide. And you will have to, together, go get some therapy. And the faster you get it, the better off you're going to be. Otherwise, it, it can be a problem that will take both of you down. And I want that to sound hopeful and helpful and not discouraging. But the other thing that will help is if you'll spend some time learning about grieving before the domino falls and learning about how to grieve and if y'all will challenge each other on, like, what really happened? Are we reframing this? Am I making something bad sound good? Am I missing something that I could learn from because I'm pretending that I've already learned what I had to learn from that? nobody can help the two of you with that like you can help each other. And that'll, that'll be discipline. You'll just have to work at that. And you'll feel like, man, why would we want to do this? This is such a bummer. You want to do it because it, it will serve you really well in the long run. Thank you. And our next question comes from Meg. I want to add one thing on to the last thing I said. Yeah. And then we'll hear Meg. The other thing that I think is really important about sevens, and I never thought of it in the context of two sevens together until just now, but I think it's almost impossible for sevens to stay in a relationship with somebody they can't make happy no matter what they do. It's like when you jump through every hoop and you do every trick you know to make the other person happy, and I don't mean frivolous happy, I mean happy with life and content and okay, then I just don't see how you can stay in a relationship. And that would be really, really tricky when you're in a relationship with another seven. All right. And now from Meg. Hi. Um, I've started learning about stance work 
and um, what we each repress in our different stances. And I being an eight, I know that I'm repressed in my feeling stance. Um, in the in the aggressive stance, I'm repressed in feelings. And uh, so I was wondering if for each stance, you would give a few sort of practical ways of bringing out, like when we realize what we're acting in our stance, um, if there were some practices that would help us um, activate the thing that we're repressing um, and thereby kind of help move us into more, a more whole sense of reality. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks. Hi, Meg. That's a good question, and I'm proud of you as Nate for asking it. Um, I'm only going to answer it for you, though, rather than answer all the stances. Um, I'm going to just talk with you about eightness and about what you need to do. Um, one of the reasons that my answer is just going to be for you is it's not the same thing for all numbers in the stance. It's individuated for you. First thing you need to do, having realized that you're feeling repressed, is begin to observe yourself. And the reason that you struggle is because you're passionate about what you do and you substitute passion for other feelings, other expressions of feeling. And so the first thing I'd like for you to do is spend some time around the things that you're really passionate about and then ask yourself, what is the feeling behind this passion? Does it make me happy? Am I passionate about it because it makes me angry? Figure out what you're feeling before you feel passionate. That's a good place for you to start, and that'll help you a lot. Second, in terms of bringing up feelings, then if you love children, then I would encourage you to volunteer at a children's hospital, either at a Scottish Rite hospital where children are struggling with different physical challenges that they have to get through, or uh, maybe in a cancer hospital where children are uh, diagnosed with very serious illness. Um, they always need volunteers in those hospitals, and that would be a good place for you to learn to be present to feelings that you can't fix. If you're not uh, really comfortable around children, then I would encourage you to do the same thing by um, being a uh, working at an animal shelter where they have abused animals that need care or maybe fostering puppies and kittens and animals that are waiting to be adopted that they don't have room for at the shelter so that you're having feelings and letting them go and having feelings and letting them go and once you get in touch with your own feelings then you're ready to be more attuned to other people's feelings and you'll be more able to accommodate those, and you'll have less tendency to push feelings to the side. I hope that helps. And if you are uncomfortable with children and animals, then I would encourage you to volunteer at a homeless shelter or um, in a program that feeds and helps care for the elderly, um, someplace where you can't problem solve and where you are met day in and day out with other people's feelings. All right, the next couple of questions will either be really easy for you to answer or uh, not quite as fun and easy for you to answer. All right, we'll see. 
Uh, they both concern two, so I'm going to ask them back to back. Uh, the first. Did you write these questions? <clears throat> I did not. Okay. The, fir the first one is from Elizabeth. All right, Elizabeth. As a two, how can you know if your giving is out of goodness or out of uh, need to be seen as giving? How do you know if it's altruistic? And in the same vein, the second question, uh, how do you know when you're feeling your own feelings from a different person? Okay. Well, Elizabeth, yours is the easiest of the two questions. So I'm going to start with you. So here are the questions that I work with. And there are five of them. And I work with them every day. Every day, every day, every day. So the first one is, um, I do a contemplative sit almost every morning. And I would really encourage that. Because if you can learn a contemplative practice, that's the first thing to help you discern what's yours to do. Secondly, I ask myself three questions. When I'm moving towards somebody in order to help them or give to them, I ask myself three questions. One, why am I moving toward this other person? What's happening in me that I'm moving toward them? Second, what, if anything, do I expect to get in return? And third, does the other person even want my help? I've helped a lot of people who don't want my help. I often move toward other people to help them when I'm avoiding something that is mine to do, and I'm just intuitively or unconsciously putting that off, so I'll just go help somebody else and feel good about that. The fourth question is, what is it if I don't do it, nobody else can or will? And that's very helpful to me in terms of determining what's mine to do. And lots of times the thing that's mine to do isn't the thing that I would choose. So I want to give you and all the listeners as an example of that. Years and years ago, um, we lived in northeast Texas in a rural setting, and I was on the board of directors for Child Protective Services for the county. And I'm an adopted child, and I'm a two. I'm, I'm perfectly put together to have that position, and I loved it. And in that context, in rural Texas, sometimes that meant that you took kids home for a day or two or you kept a baby for a day or two. There were all kinds of hands-on ways of feeling really good about myself with that. And one day I drove the 30 minutes to go to that meeting, and it was announced that the president of the board had uh, resigned because his family was moving. And they said to me that they had always thought I'd be such a good president for the board and would I take that position. And everything in me wanted to, everything in me. And I told them that I would talk to Joe about it and that I would pray about it and I'd get back to him. Mostly because I thought that was the right answer, not because that's really how I felt. And I went straight from that meeting to uh, a meeting with my youngest son's kindergarten teacher. And at that meeting, she explained to me and to Joe that BJ had hand-eye coordination problems and that we needed to do a lot of things with him to work on that. And I'll give you one example. We were supposed to have him use tongs to put cotton balls in muffin tins three or four times a day. And there were other things that were just exactly that exciting. And when I asked the question, what is it that if I don't do it, nobody else can or will? It was tongs and cotton balls and muffin tins. 
and it was not to be the president of the Board of Child Protective Services. And so that's how I determined my altruistic giving. So be careful with the question because you can manipulate it to give you the answer that you want instead of the real answer. And then finally, my question every day of my life is, what is mine to do? And I ask the big question in the morning after my sit, and then I ask the question all day long, is this mine to do? Is this mine to do? I hope that helps. And then the second question was, how do you know if you, as a two, if you are feeling your own feelings? Gosh, I don't know if this answer will help you or not. That's a struggle for me every day of my life. But I, I will say the two things that help me the most are I'm married to somebody who understands the Enneagram and I'm friends with people who understand the Enneagram. And I have given some of those people, my husband and some friends, permission to stay with me when I'm not doing well, to ask me over and over what I'm feeling. What, it, what are you feeling? Yeah, but is that your feeling? Are you picking up other people's feelings? Or is that your feeling? The first time that I really kind of got it was about 10 years ago, and I was in the middle of a meltdown, and I was behaving really badly with my husband, Joe. And at the end, he kind of grinned at me at the end of my tirade, he kind of grinned at me and he said, well, I have to say, I think those are your feelings for sure. So I think you ought to watch for when you're angry because generally that's made up of your feelings. The maybe most helpful thing now is when these people that have the request from me to be helpful to me in knowing what I feel is when they ask me, what I'm thinking. Because the best way for me to distinguish my feelings from somebody else's is for me to bring up thinking, and I'm thinking repressed as a two on the Enneagram. So I hope those two answers are helpful. Those things help me. Okay, now we have a question from a six. Hi, I'm a six on the Enneagram, and I find myself constantly having an internal us-against-them mentality in friendships. I don't want to feel this way, and I'm hopeful that others don't catch on, but I almost feel subconsciously possessive over my friendships. I tend to get annoyed internally if I make plans with a friend, only to find out that they have invited others to come along. It bothers me that I never naturally think in a the more the merrier type of way. Is this a typical six behavior? Any advice on how I can think through this internal battle so that I'm not unknowingly pushing people away? seemed like a very vulnerable six question. It's a very vulnerable question, and it's a very well-thought-out question. Like, that's a lot of good self-observation. Most people don't get to that. So congratulations for that. Here's my response. An us-against-them mentality for sixes actually comes from a good place. And the place that it comes from inside of you is that you're the number that's most concerned about the common good. So in terms of us against them in your friendship circle, that's one thing that comes from a good place. The other side of that, though, is when the circle gets bigger and you're concerned about that and you get possessive, that's because of projection, actually. 
and that is that you project onto your friend that they don't have room for you and for the other people in the group. And anytime you're involved in projection, which is a, a, a consistent struggle for sixes, then you're projecting your own feelings onto other people. So because you don't want other people in the group, you make up that your friend doesn't want you in the group. And that's where that problem stems from. And I would just suggest that if you get possessive, you're going to lose. So you have to learn to accommodate added people and work on reframing how you see your place in relationship to your friends. What is your place and what is your place with them? I think another thing that causes you conflict here is that you're interested in knowing a lot about other people, but you're not so interested in other people knowing a lot about you. And the more people who are involved, the more vulnerable you feel because other people are going to ask you questions and know things about you. And as a six, you like to ask the questions, and you ask hard ones, but you don't like to answer them so much. So that's a lot said. I want you to dig through all of that and figure out which pieces of the answer fit different circumstances with you and your friends. And finally, I think it's okay to say to a really close friend, would it be all right with you because I so value and trust time when I can just talk to you about my stuff and there's nobody else around? Would it be all right with you if once a week we have coffee or if once every two weeks we just have coffee together? And then other than that, the more the merrier. And maybe that'll address what you need without coming across as you trying to be possessive or exclusive. I hope that helps. A question I would have too that I have for you is are um, are sixes good with changing the plans? I'm not the Enneagram teacher, but from what I've picked up from you, you know, a six has made these plans out. It's going to be me and this person. And then who knows before it happens, hey, change the plans. So-and-so is going to be there. And I would think that could create a lot of anxiety in that change that the six is not prepared for. Absolutely. That's a really good point. So um, sixes don't like change, period. And they for sure don't like plans that are changed, that they weren't included in the change. And sixes don't adapt quickly because of anxiety. So, you know, there's two sides to everything, and there's two sides to that too. It is a difficult time in history and in our culture to have the kind of control that sixes feel like they need. Because privacy is highly valued by sixes, and they're very careful about who they share their lives with. And so, as a six, people send out mixed messages. They send out the message that all are welcome in some circles, and they send out the message that they're possessive in some circles. So sixes, you're going to need to explain yourself to you first and then to other people. That's awesome. a good good point, Joel. Changing the plans without telling sixes is just bad. <laughs> That's not ever going to go well. All right, and then the final question, and I wish I had planned 
better and put this next to the, our very first question from Chrissy, but we can book in it with tough kid questions. So I have eight children. We'll start with that. So not an eight child. Eight we'll, children. We'll get to the eight child. But oh, my, my, my. All right, eight children. I have eight children. I feel quite confident that my fifth child, uh, who is eight, is a type eight. I'm lost as to what to do with her. She completely wears me out with her very dynamic nature, her constant ideas, her all day long trying to control our entire household. We homeschool, so I literally never get a break from her, and I just feel overwhelmed. I'm a two. I was hoping, since I know you are also a two, and you do have an eight, uh, for sure eight daughter, I would love some advice on how to handle, in some quotes, her without crushing her. The thing that I took from this question is whether the daughter's an eight or not, the behavior is that behavior. So it seems like just putting the, my daughter is an eight aside. I'm a two. We have seven other kids besides this child and we're homeschooling and this is the behavior. Can you help? Lots of respect for the fact that you have eight children, and that you're homeschooling. Lots of respect for the question. So here's what I want to say about that. Uh, first of all, now remember I've had one little intro to your family, one tiny intro. So this could be so wrong, but there's a 50-50 chance that it's right. On the off chance that it's right, I think your middle child might be a counterphobic six and not an eight. And it's very difficult to tell them apart, but they're controlling for completely different reasons. Let me just tell you, you won't crush the spirit of an eight. You, you can't do that. But you can really miss the mark with a counterphobic six. So you need to watch and see if, in fact, one of these two things is happening. If your middle child is, in fact, an eight, then probably all of this control has to do with the fact that she's bored. If she's a counterphobic six, then all of this has to do with the fact that she's dealing with some kind of anxiety and fear. And it sounds to me like maybe she's counterphobic and she's a middle child and she's feeling like there's no place for her if she doesn't demand a place and if she doesn't demand to be in charge. And I think that might be why it's so tiring for you. Generally, twos in your position with an eight child would be grateful for the help. And it doesn't sound to me like the help is appropriate to the need, and it probably would be from an eight. So I'm I'm going to encourage exploring what that child's worried about and what they're afraid of and what they're trying to control. I hope that helps. Yeah, I mean, good luck with... Yeah, a lot. you got a lot to do. I bet you that uh, that child is either bored or afraid. And as soon as you know which it is, then you'll know how to address them wanting to be in charge. And if she's an eight, give her more responsibility that's just a little beyond what you think she can handle. And then keep moving that up and moving it up so she's always challenged. And if she's a counterphobic six, then keep looking at what she's picking up from you in terms of authority 
and what she wants to be in charge of and what her end goal is. Awesome. Thank you. You bet. And thank you all for your questions. You know, keep them coming. I know that maybe some of these questions are from November and some, you know, were from today. Uh, Man, we have lots of opportunity for teaching. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you.